You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Hi and welcome once again to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. Uh, This is Dan Davis. Uh, Unbelievably, Owen and Rich have once again given me the uh, metaphorical keys to the recording equipment. uh, And I'm very pleased to uh, be joined this week by Alice Kirschberg. Um, I'll let Alice introduce herself a little bit better in a second, but um, if I'm right in saying so, your official title, yep. Neurotrauma Clinical Nurse Specialist Perfect, yep. at the Royal London. Yep. Um, probably easy if I just hand straight over to you and just tell me um, a little bit more initially just about kind of what your title is, kind of what you do, introduce yourself, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. So hi guys, thank you for having me. Um, it's a sort of bit of an honour to be here. I've listened to a couple of the other episodes, so sort of there's lots of... Uh, sort of people that I'm walking along with, which is very exciting. Uh, so my job role, rightly said, is the sort of neurotrauma clinical nurse specialist, which probably in layman's terms is sort of traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. clinical nurse specialist. Um, my job is to really support the patients, but to be honest, most of the work's with the family, just sort of trying to guide them through the sort of very stormy waters that are sort of life after brain injury. Yeah. Um, and that starts right from the beginning and almost doesn't end. There isn't really a discharge date from sort of my services if people don't want there to be. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty sort of exciting role. I've been doing it for about four years okay. um, and that's based at the Royal London. Uh, was the first person in role and currently still the only person in role, which is uh, wow. sometimes a challenge and something we're hoping to sort of change, but we'll see. And so relatively recently, the Royal London have kind of set up a specific kind of trauma ward. Yeah. Um, is this part of that kind of set up? Or? Yeah. So it's all come. So my boss is a neurosurgeon called Christopher Ruff. He started the Royal London in 2015. Mm-hmm. And neurosurgery sort of historically at the Royal London wasn't the biggest fan of trauma. Um, and sort of there was lots of trauma advances with other sort of specialities. And we were probably a little bit sort of too far behind. Uh, so he set up initially just him and one of the other consultants doing quite specific brain injury ward rounds. Okay. And that's now turned into a consultant-led service five days a week with four consultants, uh, including the world, uh, the North East London's first female neurosurgical consultant. So awesome. we're very pleased about that. Yeah. Um, and and me. And we sort of see just the brain injury patients. So sort okay. of the rest of the neurosurgical patients are seen by other teams, which means that you get really quite intensive sort of service. Sure. Um, and as I said, that's consultant-led, which is pretty good going. Cool. Well, we'll, we'll come back a little bit mm. in, in kind of more about your kind of specialty and what you're doing now but um tell me a little bit about your background where have you come from how have you that's that's quite a niche role you have there it is yeah and definitely not something i had any idea that i was going to do and i think that's that's what's really great about sort of nursing we're not tied into i think sort of often with sort of paramedics and doctors you really there is a quite a sort Mm -hmm. of a role whereas for us we can sort of go and do anything we want to um i started uh 12 years ago um doing head and neck oncology and started doing that and I was doing that for a couple of years and then I realised I didn't have the sort of basic nursing skills in terms of dealing with someone with sort of a hypo or even felt very uncomfortable with sort of cardiac arrest which looking back most people do sort of 18 months after qualification (laughs) and I thought oh I'll go and do a bit of A&E because that would be a good idea and at the time I was looking for a job at St Thomas's because I worked at Guys at St Thomas's and it was that sort of thing you do on a night shift sort of an NHS job sort of trawling through and uh, there wasn't any and I saw a job come up at the Royal London and I'd never heard of the Royal London despite living in London and training in London so I sort of skipped along to this interview and I think the interview panel were just completely flabbergasted that I didn't realize it was this sort of bastion of trauma healthcare and wasn't coming to look at a helicopter I sort of had no idea there was a helicopter there um (laughs) so it was an interesting sort of was a sort of trial by fire let me say for the first couple of weeks and some of the things I saw there I just thought what on earth have I done yeah yeah and I said, right, let me do six months to a year and I'll see what happens. And six years later... You're still going. I, yeah, I sort of made the decision to sort of to go then. And I think it was a hard decision to leave and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I think everybody should do A&E. Yeah. I just think it gives you just the most amazing skill set that are not clinical. Just your ability to sort of think laterally. You never know what's coming in. And that teamwork. I still really miss the teamwork, I think, is sure. probably the one thing. I think um, I think that's probably when our paths originally crossed because yes. I've always kind of obviously worked in in East London. So I think you know you are our, you and I sort of starts to kind of sort of see each other, and know each other yeah. in 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 uh, in the ED department in Resus as well. Yeah. And um, I mean the Royal London itself has um, has evolved and changed even in in that Absolutely. sort of time. And obviously yeah. since kind of major trauma status, uh, when did that happen now? 
Oh, God, was, I, I want to say, I mean, I started there in 2010, and I yeah. would say it was before that, yeah. and it was sort of really quite embedded. But even then, it's changed massively yeah. since 2010. And it's, um, and it's evolving. And like you say, it's interesting that, you know, you came along to this place and, and you weren't oh, interested in the helicopter, which is seemingly yeah. kind of what everyone else <laughs> yeah. seems to go there for. But um, And much like trauma centres and major trauma centres all around the world, is ironically, I think people have in their mind that they're going to be these shiny kind of palaces of amazingness <laughs> yeah. and actually they're usually in the roughest areas yeah. um yeah. and 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 sort of deal with that but actually amazingly it kind of gets under your skin a bit doesn't oh. it i always say to people that place was like a drug all it would take you'd have sort of bad shift and you think right okay i can't do this anymore you know again you'd sort of be thinking where can i look and then all it would take was one good shift and something to happen and sometimes it was a really inane thing and as i said you know people get really excited about sort of big trauma but yeah. it was something of someone saying thank you or just dealing with you know and you know patients dying in any departments is never ideal but yeah. in order if you made that good you sort of thought we really cracked it here Amazing. and that would get you through about the next six weeks and yeah. then you'd need sort of something else and i always used to say to people that it's like a drug and it really yeah. was it's incredible addictive and the people that work there were as I said I mean I've made friends for life yeah. and I think that's the thing isn't it it's the it's the teams around you that, that that make it and yeah. um do you find um I mean we'll, we'll sort of go on to in a second you mm. moving on and into yeah. your current role but mm. do you find people stay because we're t- I'm sort of trying to reach comparisons with the um, um pre-hospital world and yeah. the world we're certainly living in, in in London and certainly around probably lots of ambulance services around the country um up a nurse is generally staying in role? Is it a role that people do for a short period of time? Yeah. Do you think that's evolved and changed in the time that you've been nursing for? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, I'm sort of currently doing a master's at the moment, and we were talking about this last week, the real changing role of nurses. And I know you guys are paramedics are seeing it as well. You know, nurse prescribing, advanced nurse practitioners. And, I mean, there was one advanced nurse practitioner, I think, when I started in 2010. And now most of my colleagues who haven't left A&E, that's what they've gone in to do. Yeah. I think... It was interesting because when I sort of got more senior, you dealt with recruitment and you would see the sort of band five junior nurses that would come and you know that this was a stepping stone to something else. And they were going to do six months to a year and that was it. And then you saw the people that came and were going to stay for six, seven, eight years. And I think it was either people fell into sort of those two categories. It was really weird. You didn't, it it really was a sort of, this is a step to the next thing or actually I really sort of found my people here. That's interesting. I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast will, will sort of find, um, parallels with that uh, certainly I mean you, you could be describing sort of you know the paramedic world mm. at the moment to be honest with you um, I think you know certainly when I when I started and the kind of dinosaurs of you know my <laughs> yeah. sort of era before it was very much it was a, a, a career and, and you were set yeah um, and I think now with with the changing face of education yeah. um, I think I'm not sure about certain nursing but certainly in paramedics now that it's all kind of comes through the university system yeah. and, and, and sort of graduate system um, and like you say kind of from it used to be the band five role, and that was pretty much yeah, it for, yeah, for life. Whereas yeah. now, you know, um, paramedics have moved up to band six. You yeah. have the band seven clinicians yeah. like myself. And now you're getting band eight kind of managerial and now clinical posts yeah. as well. And I think it's the same with nursing as well. So yeah. there's there's kind of lots to join with that. So that kind of moves us on then. Mm. So obviously you, you, you worked in the uh, exciting and uh, yeah. <laughs> challenging, shall we say, yeah. world of um, <laughs> emergency medicine. What's... Did, did someone come looking for you? Did you go looking for something? Or did you just get to that point where you needed something else and Yeah, went? I was thinking about this the other day because it's funny, isn't it? I think a lot of time people think you either sort of, you pushed or you sort of jumped, don't you? And it was really a bit, I don't know, my sort of nursing career is always just things have sort of found me and not when I've desperately needed to go. But I remember sort of thinking, you know, especially when you sort of stay in E, I've got two options here, management, which I just couldn't see myself yeah. doing the yeah and or sort of an AMP sort of ENP yeah. thing and I love talking as it will become very clear um and I sort of started at 10 months old and haven't stopped Good. and uh but I didn't my sort of procedural stuff I enjoyed it but I didn't get that real thrill out of it mm-hmm. and I thought so I don't really don't think I want to be sort of an advanced nurse sort of practitioner yeah. and I remember sort of thinking the things that used to excite me I used to look around the sort of junior nurses, you know, they'd be running for that red phone in recess, getting really excited about sort of people who are sort of in a really bad way. And yeah. I would sort of be thinking, there's someone at home waiting for them. Yeah. And that's the thing that really used to get me. And I'd be spending all my time sort of running around looking for family members and all that sort of thing. And I thought, I think I've sort of done. And, and the other thing I noticed over the years were people who didn't know that they were done in A&E. And that yeah. was the hardest thing. And I think you see people that just sort of become, because you just... You think it's normal. You think this sort of days are normal. You yeah. think life is normal yeah. like this. And I think when that starts to happen, I think you do have to go. Your baseline of normality changes, oh, isn't it's, it? And it's even worse now, actually, doing yeah. this job. You know, I'm convinced that everybody I know and love is going to have some horrible accident. <laughs> and I spend most of my time saying to people, 
So what would you like if this will happen? Yeah. You know, every Christmas dinner is some sort of talk about sort of mortality. <laughs> I've been banned from talking about it now. But I just, you do, you completely, you don't think that people get to the age of 90 and die peacefully no. in their bed. No. And I think that's hard and you do have to sort of check in often and just go, this is not normal. Yeah. This is normal. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what's... So yeah, I sort of started looking and again, this job was on NHS Jobs. I'd never done any neurosurgery. And I thought, well, how am I going to go and apply for a job that says sort of neurotrauma clinical nurse specialist? I read the job description, which was about four sort of bullet points. So yeah. basically be smiley and be nice, well, you know, in a nicer, in a, you know, in a professional sense. Yeah. But that's basically what they'd written. And I thought, well, I'll go and apply for it and see what happens. Um, and yeah, that was sort of four did years you, ago. At that stage, did you, did you know anyone of... In in the in that unit or no, I mean, that I knew, side of the the sort of nursing or no, I'd seen. I mean, I'd seen Chris Huff around. Mm-hmm. He's an incredible man, and once you've met him, you'll never forget meeting him. So I think when I'd sort of applied, I sort of deliberately didn't really go and talk to anyone about it because I really didn't think I'd sort of get the job, and I didn't tell anybody. And I thought, you know, you have to sort of. I think I met, mentioned it to a couple of people, but nobody that would have then said it to anybody else. And I, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't sort of go and look at the ward. I knew basically where the neurosurgical ward was, but that was about it. And I thought, you know, I've seen a lot of trauma and I really wanted to know sort of what happens next. You know, for me, that sort of leaving A&E, sort of the patient leaving A&E, I was like, well, what what happens now? And I remember I used to sort of write down, I had a little book and I used to write down the sort of, you know, unique identifier number um, that wasn't, it's not, there's no information governance issue. There's nothing else on there. And I used to look, look patients up, you know, a couple of weeks later, someone that I thought, oh, that's really interesting or that. And I just thought, I really like this. I I want to know what happens next. Yeah. And that was a a good way to go and find out. Yeah. So you obviously successfully got the job. Yes. And you said, so essentially you're on your own. Yeah. (laughs) So so what next? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because the interview, they asked you, we had to do a PowerPoint presentation about where we saw the service in three months and then in nine months. The Which is nice, short term. It's the classic five years or ten years. Yeah, like you think, um, three months. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I, the I sort of arrived, you know, with all these sort of ideas. And then I, I'd been part of, um, been the sort of violence reduction nurse for the mm-hmm. Royal London, sort of the first one, and been taken over now by a good colleague of mine, Mike yeah. Carver. He's doing amazing things with it. And um, I'd set up that service, so I think that's what had they'd sort of I'd sort of swung them with the fact that yes I didn't know neurosurgery and sort of Chris had said to me afterwards we can teach you neurosurgery Mm -hmm. we can't teach you how to set something up so it really was just getting to know people you know and sort of finding my feet understanding what the role was but you know we talked so much about imposter syndrome in healthcare and I was the biggest imposter going I was walking around with a name badge that said clinical nurse specialist in neurotrauma and I knew nothing you know and also what I thought I knew was then completely blown out of the water you know, I always do teaching now to A&E nurses. I thought I was great at GCS. I was really good at three and at seven and at 15. Yeah, yeah. But the difference between a 10 and 11, a 13 and a 14, like those are the real sort of minutiae that you just really can't appreciate until you just spend all your time yeah. sort of looking at these patients. So it sounds so it sounds like your role whilst, because obviously it's in my head, initially you kind of, when you hear yourself as a clinical nurse specialist, yeah. you think of a more kind of hands-on sort of nursing role yeah. as such. And it sounds like from what you're saying is, your role specifically is is less clinically hands-on would you say yeah yeah I mean I do sort of ward rounds a few days a week I do two clinics uh, but yeah it's very much sort of hands-off it's that real sort of as I sort of that lateral thinking yeah. and that's supporting you know, these patients and their families are just going through what is the worst time of their lives and again I used to feel really privileged at A&E to be part of that for a small moment and now I'm part of that whole journey and yeah. that's it's a wonderful feeling um, it's hard work but it is a wonderful feeling and it's just the sort of the things that people take for granted you know we are very wonderful at the front door I know we might come on to this a little bit later and I think then you know somebody goes rushing off for sort of surgery they have all these CT scans and then sort of a couple of days later we'll do another CT scan and for the family every time previously there's been a scan it's because we're worried and something's wrong and someone's come rushing to tell them what the answer to that is you know two days later it's just because we're doing a scan because yeah. we're you know sort of being thorough and you see them you know they're sort of waiting around for someone to, someone to come and tell them results and that sort of communication the sort of consistency and you know people are on shift off shift all the yeah. time yeah. and you you just sort of need someone to sort of walk them through it. Are you the person that um, kind of de- debunks the kind of the medicalese and, and tries to explain it to yeah. families in a kind of more kind of digestible form? Um, or do you find are your sort of team and, and, you know, your consultants and the rest of your team quite good at sort of at, at doing that? 
they're learning and I think they're learning because they've had four years of me going on and on I do a regular presentation called the fluffy stuff it's yeah. got a massive picture of basically a huge fluffy rabbit <laughs> um, and I gave it once the first time to the consultants and someone sort of put their hand up and said so you're telling me if you tell people what's wrong with them they are sort of thankful for that and I said yes there yes. you go yeah exactly <laughs> I was like wow well, I thought well, you know, when he put his hand up I thought oh, it's gonna ask me this very difficult question but it's sometimes you see it's like a revelation and I do a lot of training for sort of breaking bad news for sort of mm. the neurosurgical juniors because sometimes it's really awful and their reliance is heavily on me which is fine you know Monday to Friday but three o'clock in the morning I'm, I'm not coming in to yeah. break that bad news yeah. um, and just that sort of thing of what you the way you think people are going to react you know and I'm sure you've seen it. I've had people cry the worst is when people thank you yeah and you think, oh, no, no, I'm not prepared yeah, for that. I'm prepared yeah. to you to shout and cry and say what, but don't thank me. That's really yeah. difficult. So I try and give them all the different sort of scenarios. So I think they've learned a lot um, and they are now better at it. They do need reminding a lot of the time. Um, or what tends to happen is I'll stay. They'll do the sort of doctory bit and then they go and I go, did you actually understand any <laughs> of that? And they go uh, 10%, 20%. You know, and I think it's, it's, and the other thing I'll try and do is if I meet the family beforehand, I can often sort of prep the neurosurgeons and just say, look, this family are a bit medical or these are the sort of questions they're ans yeah. asking or they seem really not to understand any of this. We really have to start right back at the beginning. And certainly, I mean, I would imagine it's probably the same, you know, the world over and certainly across the, the big trauma centres and neurosurgery centres across the UK. Yeah. But by the very geographical nature of where the Royal London is in East London. It's yeah. a very multicultural yeah. area, but also you are receiving patients from probably all over the kind of South East that, that yeah. end up coming into yeah. Royal London via, you know, ambulances yeah. and helicopters and all sorts yeah. of wonderful things. So <laughs> um, I would imagine that itself can be a challenge because you're yeah. dealing with probably every single kind of cultural, yeah. ethnic, socioeconomic yeah. kind of group of patients yeah. kind of going really, so. 100% and I think that's years of experience and just knowing what certain sort of cultural groups need and what's right for them and what you know uh, you know a lot of people I wear a nursing uniform and I chose to wear a nursing mm. uniform so a lot of families at the beginning feel a bit like well when's the doctor coming yeah. and you sort of say okay well the doctor can come but let me talk to you first and if you still want the doctor they can come later mm. and by sort of a couple of weeks in that you know yeah. they're just sort of like Alice can you just tell me sort yeah. of what's going on and I'm very respectful of that you know I'm in a very unique role which lots of people have never heard of and there's lots of places that don't have it yeah. um so it does take that definitely that sort of time to just to sort of say you can have the information let me give it to you and if you need someone else to sort of give you yeah. some more then we, we you talk about kind of uniforms and I, I i one of the first times i met alice to talk about this podcast actually i met her, met her in one of her very very brief interludes between work <laughs> yeah. um, and we were talking about uniforms and the fact you've you've actively chosen to keep a nurse's yes. or traditional nurse's yeah. uniform as such to identify yourself rather than just having the badge because otherwise yeah. people end up kind of looking at your badge yeah um but the downside to that is almost particularly kind of in the in the hospital society it's a very kind of still it's a very hierarchical kind yeah. of or seen from the outside as a hierarchical yeah. I, I know for a fact from from you guys within kind of your division and certainly the sort of trauma unit mm. it's it's less so yes, 100%. um but actually sort of making that conscious decision to mm. kind of identify yourself as that as well yeah. um one of the previous podcasts um, in the previous series where Owen spoke to Nick Brown about Breaking Bad News. Mm. Um, and I, I know certainly in, in our role, um, we do an awful lot yeah. of it. And actually, a lot of, our, a lot of our role is also sort of educating kind of younger paramedics and sort of um, the guys about, about how to do it. Yeah. Um, have you done any sort of formal training around that? Or do you think you've just learnt it as you've gone along and it's your experience over all the years of probably seeing the good, the bad and the ugly of yeah. how to, to, to talk to people and, yeah. and deal with kind of uncomfortable conversations, I suppose. Yeah, no, definitely. I don't think I ever really had any sort of formal training and I'm not sure that the NHS no, is still no. where it should be in terms of formal training. And it's interesting because you say about sort of for junior paramedics and, the, you know, that's the thing. It's as you get more senior what was often fine you know what you do is you often send that really junior nurse in with that doctor to break the bad news yeah. and you sort of think you know would I've had the sort of well probably balls is the you know what I mean but would I've had that to, to sort of say oh I don't think this is quite how it's going and yeah I mean I've seen I think I've seen it from a sort of medical point of view mm -hmm. and I think we're really lucky as nurses because we're sent into that room 
and I used to always go and try and just at least introduce myself to the family or just at least know who they were you know and then sort of as we're walking in say to the doctor oh that's oh, Mrs so and so and that's this one's brother because yeah. the worst thing is when someone walks in the room and says oh and who have we got here and you just think well, it's got to take you two yeah. seconds or the patient's name yeah. you know a lot of our patients arrive with unknown identities but mm-hmm. if we've got at least a first name anything or even if you just need to clarify mm-hmm. just having that sort of human aspect of it but we are in a really privileged position because the sort of doctors and even the junior doctors they just go in to give the news and they're gone whereas I've sat in on so yeah. many versions of the same conversation yeah. that now you sort of think oh I know this is going or mm. this is sort of well, you're you're the continuity as well aren't yeah. you yeah yeah and you're sort of you know I, I tell you what, I don't drink tea or coffee but I tell you what, a cup of tea has gotten me out of some very very yeah. sticky situations because what you do is you sort of give this information you're seeing it all sink in and you sort of, you want an excuse to sort of leave just to let them process yeah. it and you sort of go anyone want a cup of tea and they go oh yes please yes please and yeah. I don't think they do either yeah. but you go and sort of make some teas and by the time you've come back they've either got a question or there's just it's yeah. allowed to sort of permeate a little bit so yeah. so is there such a thing as a normal day for you at work? <laughs> and if so, what does it look like? Yeah, I think it's really funny because when I, you know, one of the big things about A&E is like, yo, you never know what's coming in through the door and all that sort of thing. And actually, to be honest, the longer you're there, there is a bit of a routine that happens yeah, yeah. with an A&E. And you do know what's coming in the door most of the time, you know, be it Friday night, be it Monday morning, yeah. you can sort of gauge it. So this job is the complete opposite to that. And I remember sort of when I was training, you know, clinical nurse specialists traditionally were sort of, you know, men, women in sort of the older sort of generation that were perhaps looking towards retirement. And it was a sort of Monday to Friday, sort of you know, 9.30 to sort of mm. four o'clock. I mean, I've never left at four o'clock in four years. But <laughs> And the day, I will, if my days have sort of got clinics and things like that, that's quite set. But I have to prepare for an email or a phone call that's going to just throw the day mm-hmm. into complete sort of disarray uh, I mean a couple of weeks ago I had a mother of a patient who's been discharged to turn up on the ward in tears just saying I don't know where else to go and I don't know who else to talk to and you know and in my mind I had a sort of little day planned and what do you do it's just I can't say Cause, could you go away now because yeah. you, you cry at three <laughs> yeah. o'clock because actually yeah. it's sort of a bit inconvenient now I mean I'm hist- I'm not a really late person but I'm late for every meeting in that place I'm late for I mean the lifts don't help but you know <laughs> I'm literally late for everything because every time I go to do something somebody goes oh you know would you mind mm. and I've tried to leave work and then I'm standing sort of holding all my clothes yeah. and a family member sort of says oh are you going home and you sort of go um so have you yeah. um by your own sort of by your own words, are you sort of creating a bit of a monster by what you're oh, doing? Is it, is it evolving and changing yeah. and growing? And I have created, yeah, the ultimate monster, which I now sort of go, ah. But I think the other thing is there wasn't anybody really to sort of guide me, to mm. tell me this is getting too much, don't do this, don't do that. You know, the service hadn't really had a clinical nurse specialist before. Neurosurgeons are wonderful people, but they didn't really know what they yeah. wanted. I sort of started, and you know, when you start something new, you just sort of do everything, don't course, you? Because yeah. you think, especially I was so used to running around for 12 and a half hours, I thought yeah. I don't want anyone to sort of see me sitting behind a computer and think we're not doing anything. Yeah. So I just sort of started, and it's just, it is sort of, yeah. It's a bit of a and the, the nature of it, you know, certainly when you're setting up any new service, I know for a fact when we set up the advanced paramedic yeah. role in London, um, yeah, like you say, you, you don't say no to anyone, no. do you? And it's kind of like you know, if anyone says something new or throws something at you, it's like, yeah, I'm yeah. sure we can. I'm sure we can do that. Yeah, and you go. And uh, worry about it afterwards. Yeah. But, um, so you know, you're sort of a bit further down the line, and you're mm. you're still on your own at the moment. I am still on my own, yeah, at the moment, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so just from some chatting sort of now, really, it sounds like, as I said, we've kind of sort of realised that it's kind of probably a slightly less of a clinical role and more yeah. of a kind of a patient liaison yeah. role um, and a kind of a, a general kind of liaison role between sort of doctors and the families. Um, we as sort of pre-hospital clinicians mm-hmm. will see a patient for 60, yeah. 90 minutes, yeah. a couple of hours tops. Whereas you, by the sounds of it, um, could spend weeks, months, yeah. years <laughs> yeah. even. And actually, yeah. you know, you're, you, you said right at the, the, the top of this discussion that... Um, you know, sometimes it's it never ends, yeah. so to speak. Yep. Um, how do you yeah. manage that? <laughs> yeah, I think it's it. I think what's becoming more of a challenge is that as the sort of more um, sort of clinic work, there just there is just sort of more patients. I think, yeah. I mean, again, you know, for me, sort of somebody, and this is a, you can tell I've been out of A&E for quite a while, but people weren't weren't in the department for more than sort of twelve hours, yeah. and you know, and they sort of if it was a bit hard and things were a bit difficult, you sort of had a, a brief interaction with them. Mm. Whereas now it's yeah, it, it can be sort of never ending. 
It is a real challenge, but I think it's, it's your relationship with these sort of patients and families really does change. You know, so at the beginning, I know my role is very much about sort of, right, let's just get you through the next sort of 24 hours and the 24 hours after that and the 24 hours. You know, these people have all had that phone call that is the worst phone call you'd ever receive. Yeah. And it's that seconds. And, you know, someone saying to them, we're not sure they're going to make it through the night. And then you're sort of trying to go the next day and say, okay, well, we got through the night. Let's get through tomorrow night. Yeah. And you just sort of really start slowly. Lots and lots of short-term 100%. goals. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a massive, I, I don't like leaflets and I'm not a fan of sort of information overload. People need what they need at that point. And the other thing is you find is, you know, I do a lot of work seeing people sort of later down the line and we do quite a lot of bereavement work. And you find that they don't remember any of the conversations that yeah. were happening, you know, and you're, people will be adamant that no one's told them something. And you know, because you've sat in the room and sure. you think... I heard it, but you didn't, but that's okay. So it's just, right, how do we get to tomorrow and how do we get to the next day? Okay, we're a week down the line. Let's look back at the week. What happened? You know, now we're a month down the line. Yeah. And I think then sort of my role changes within that. And then, you know, when you're looking at sort of months and years, that's much more of a sort of, a sort of like a weird friendship role in one sense. I mean, I, you know, I've had people's family members have babies and I get the sort of confirmation email like other people seem to get you know I'm in with the uncle and whatever I've been to patient funerals I was asked to speak at a patient funeral which was one of the sort of most humbling experiences but also incredibly terrifying Um, parties you know people often have a big sort of party if it's around a birthday or an anniversary Um, and I'll often contact people at their anniversary of their incident and just say like you know well done here's a year or here's two years and then so sometimes even if they hadn't reached out they would reach out before and just say so it's it's a strange yeah it becomes this sort of weird sort of pseudo friendship yeah well I was gonna say because that's gonna be my next question really is how do you then separate the professional yeah. from the from the personal? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to funerals yeah. and parties yeah. and and being involved in people's day to day lives, yeah. I think it. I mean, obviously, it. The, the thing that strikes me the first and foremost is it speaks absolutely volumes about you and what and what you're doing oh, that people <laughs> want to kind of do that. Yeah. Um, but how do you how do you separate it? Yeah. It's or really, do you have to separate? Should you? Yeah, I think it's really hard, and I think you know I don't know what it's like in paramedic training, but nursing training you're sort of you're taught to sort of care, and I'm not sure if you can teach people to care, but that's my sort <laughs> of opinion. But yeah, no. you know you're taught to care, but it's also care sort of behind a bit of a sort of mask, you know, and sort of you care, but you care between the hours of sort of eight and eight, yeah. and you care, but you don't mention the fact that what you do outside of those sort of walls. And yeah. I think as I've got older, I've definitely sort of blurred those lines a little bit. And there are family members that know stuff about me, nothing massively yeah. personal, but you know, stuff. And I mean, like for example, if I go on holiday. Holiday, they need to know because there's no one there so I come back from holiday and they all say oh how was your holiday and how was this and they'll know so and so that was there or yeah. I sometimes get sort of a mildly passive aggressive like are you back yet you know that sort of thing <laughs> yes I'm coming so you do end up and I think in order to be sort of human about all of this mm. I think you have to be a human being yeah. you know I'll have family say to me oh you look really tired today and I'll say oh really and they say yeah and I'll go well, actually it's just been a really busy day and I think they just appreciate that you know I think they share so much of themselves with me that I mean maybe incorrectly I always give them a little bit of something and it's not the whole thing no but I just I don't think you could do this in a really sort of prescriptive wooden way I just people wouldn't believe it it's 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 interesting the more the more we sort of chat about this the more I realize this there's so much you know we have parallels of our sort of career as well I think we're exactly the same um I think you know certainly from, from my perspective when I first started um, you you do that kind of sort of caring thing, but I think you're also kind of quite overwhelmed by everything. Oh, so actually, your ability to have any sort of empathy or compassion <laughs> yeah, is yeah. is relatively small because yeah. you're so overwhelmed by just doing the job itself. Yeah. And as you evolve and develop and get and get more comfortable doing the role, yeah. and and certainly now doing what I do now is as your exposure to kind of you know the the sicker end of the mm. the, the spectrum mm-hmm. increases. Um, and actually, there's an element of yes, you know, there's a, there's a high element of clinical work in my role, yeah. but, but increasingly, it's about talking to families, talking yeah. to patients, yeah. talking to crews. Yeah. Um, and I think, unless you become that human, yeah. then you then then you you're, you can't be very good at doing what you're doing. Yeah. And actually, ironically, the more of it you see, the more empathetic you become, yeah. the more you know, there's compassion that creeps in. But the downside to that yeah. is it. I think it probably takes a little bit out of you. Oh, yeah. Doing that. Yeah, definitely. And again, I think, and the other thing for me is that I no longer work in a team. You know, there'd be a, a sort of day in A&E and you sort of, you know, you've you've been there yourself. And, and even from the crew bringing somebody in, you could tell this had affected everybody. Yeah. And people are around and there's people to talk to. Mm-hmm. And now not only has that thing happened, but the patient might be with me for four months. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's a constant sort of thing of it happening. And I often find if I'm sort of, tr- you know, you try and sort of tell other people, 
Yeah. And if they don't work sort of in the line of work that you do, you know, say it's sort of in your private life or even sort of people who work in the hospital doing other things, you sort of end up sort of emotionally sort of looking after them as well. They're yeah. like, oh, that is so awful. And you go, no, no, I know, no, no, I know it's awful. Yeah. I just need to tell you so that I can sort of just yeah. say it out loud. And they go, well, oh, wow, that is horrendous. And you go, yes, and, no. And, yeah. and then you sort of, right now I'm comforting you. So this was, you know. Does that, does that creep into your personal life then? Do you oh, think as a, yeah. per, as, a, as a, are you naturally that sort of person anyway? Or do you think you've grown into that and so naturally before you know it, you start, you know, sort of just, you know, putting up metaphorical arm around everyone because... Oh, because yeah, you're... I'm a total nightmare. I'm like a nurse. I mean, you know, clearly... Like a nurse. I mean, the only person that does healthcare in my family. Okay. So they love a story, yeah, the same, yeah. you know, but then also they love a story, but then you tell them the story and they're horrified and they're sad <laughs> and then they message you sort of a couple of days later about it and you're going, oh, no, then don't ask me. Yeah. You know, I can't give you happy, fluffy bunnies all of the yeah. time. Like, this is the reality. And they're sort of, you know, or my dad, bless him, who, you know, reads Evening Standard and every sort of time yeah. he sees anything, he sort of sends a picture and he's like is this yours? Is this yes. yours? I'm like, Dad, yeah. we can't talk about things like that. Yeah. But, you know, and they're also involved and they're, you know, they're incredibly proud, which is lovely. But it, yeah, I do. I'm sort of nurse everybody. Yeah. All the time. And, and I know certainly, you know, so I'm sort of not divulging any sort of uh, personal information about mm. patients or whatever. But again, when I kind of met you the other day, um, you had a patient that, you know, that, that was kind of, to a certain degree, sort of almost outside of the hospital. Yes. And do you find that just by the nature of what's going on and as you start to get more and more involved... Um, certainly with some of the younger patients yeah. that you're almost having to creep outside of the oh, actual yeah. the four walls of yeah. the hospital I was sort of joking the other day you sort of end up doing sort of out, outreach you know and I think I mean I've got uh, people I've sent people back to sort of South Korea America and I've got a, a family in America who just sort of, sort of a one, wonderful family and he sort of the, the father emails me all the time and he's always saying to me you know next time in New York you've got to come you know you've yeah. got to come and see us and next time I'm there I'm sure I will take him up sort of on the offer but yeah I think it, it you know, ev- all of hospital is moving to outside the four walls. Like, you know, we talk about pre-hospital yeah. care and yet we're still so obsessed with making people come to an outpatient appointment who perhaps just don't feel ready to leave the house or don't have anyone to bring them. Yeah. You know, and you sort of think, and we often have to be a bit flexible. You know, the major trauma patients are so severely injured and you look at their timetable and they've got, you know, ophthalmology on a Monday, orthopedics on a Tuesday, neurosurgery on a Wednesday, and they've got no means of getting there, transport every day. And we're just still not great at sort of saying, why don't you come to one big joint clinic? Yeah. So often if someone, you know, it was a guy the other day who didn't turn up to his appointment and I rang him and they were sort of miles away in Essex and they said the transport's still not here and I said look and poor mum was beside herself saying we can't miss the appointment I said look and she said oh we're coming to Fracture Clinic on Tuesday I said I'll come and say hi I said you know I can move the walls of my appointment but there's an element it must be overwhelming you know (laughs) for everyone involved and I suppose you're that person that they sort of cling to really aren't you yeah and I think that's the thing about that relationship once you sort of provide the support which is what I need to do you have become the person that will provide the support. And, you know, I get emails saying, could you sort of, uh, you know, I've got an ingrown toenail. What yeah. got that? And you sort of go, oh, no, you need to go to your GP. And they're like, oh, my GP, I can't get an appointment. And I say, no, I know. but And I think people need that that person. And I, again, I'm privileged to be that person. But, yeah, you do run into that sort of thing of once you help, you're yeah. going to help. Yeah. Are you... Do you have counterparts within the within the trauma surface, like yourself, or I mean, obviously, you know, your specialism is the neurotrauma, yeah. but yeah. like you say, you know, unless it's an isolated head injury, yes. they're going to have other stuff going yeah. on, and obviously, you're part of the the trauma system, exactly. sort of, you know, trauma sciences system in mm. uh, the, the London. Um, do you have counterparts that you can then kind of share and yeah, offload with? Or? Definitely. So there's a there's sort of after trauma team, which is a fairly sort of recent um, thing at the Royal London. And there's sort of the trauma coordinators. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about five, I think, of them. Um, and they're really, really great sort of support network. And again, sometimes you do that sort of informal sort of supervision where you just sort of talk about the same patient you've you know, got. And they will often key work a lot of the patients. So we'll work together, especially on people who are quite complicated. Or if I've got a couple of days off and I have to sort of say, look, this family are really at that real crucial point. I need someone to just go and have a chat with them or just check in and check that they're okay and then I have another wonderful colleague who hate me for mentioning his name but Frank Chegg who a lot of you will know who is a patient liaison nurse for London's Air Ambulance who is a, a total genius and he was actually my boss for many years in A&E so it's sort of his fault that I'm either sitting here and doing this job um, but he is just incre- wonderful and we share a lot of patients and he's an incredible resource because we can often just sit down and really you know when I get a phone call from someone saying ah, the ceiling's mm-hmm. falling in and it's all awful you know you sort of you end up in that space as soon as you take that phone call and someone like Frank you can just sort of sit down and he just goes well okay what can we sort now what can we sort later you know you sort of get your heads out of the clouds as well so I think that really helps and he is yeah I think this this patient liaison kind of role is Mm -hmm. becoming you know it's 
It's uh, it, well, certainly Frank's role sort of was created when when I was sort yeah. of with with London's Air Ambulance, but um, you know around the kind of various air ambulances and and critical care systems yeah. around the country now, this this role is becoming increasingly important and a vital part of the sort of team, really. Yeah. Um, it kind of takes me on to my next question. I'm going to I'm going to come back to asking you a bit more about you at the okay. end, which will be you might want to answer, but um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, do you think? I mean, a lot of the sort of stuff that we've been talking about, and a lot of the kind of pre-hospital podcasts that are around, are talking about the um, advances in kind of mm. what we're doing. Do you think that the advances that are happening in kind of certainly in pre-hospital medicine and right at the kind of the, the cutting edge of critical care, um, we're seeing patients that are surviving injuries yeah. that 10, 15, Huge. 20 years mm-hmm. ago just just they didn't survive yeah. them. Um, and they're now surviving to, to, to ED and to ITU. Yeah. Are we creating challenges and problems for you? Um, and are we creating, um, are people surviving injuries that physically um, and actually psychologically, mm. they probably shouldn't be able to, to, mm. to survive? Mm. No, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really good point. And again, it's really like leaving A&E and sort of moving into this role has definitely changed what I think about sort of, you know, survival. There's surviving and that's sort of getting out of the door and getting to sort of theatres. And that's when you look at all the research and, you know, I'm a huge fan of research, but it looks at sort of survival rates. And that's a key thing. But for me, it's all about sort of thriving. And, and when I meet someone who has had sort of bells and whistles, you know, helicopters flown the top of the top operating within you know x amount of time and on paper is a sort of huge research success and they haven't left the house and they've lost their job and they don't talk to any of the friends and family anymore Mm -hmm. and they are just in the most awful place and you really then start to think we're still not doing something right you know we are doing amazing things at the front end and i want that to continue but the sort of back end for want of a better word really has to sort of catch up yeah. and you know in the nicest possible way these these patients are grateful but they don't care that they were flown here in no, an ambulance they don't care that they had the you know that they were the first person to have this or the eighth person to have this it doesn't mean anything when life then just feels like the sort of walls have closed mm. in and like there's nothing else to and that's do. part of their journey that they're, they're least likely to remember or yes. know anything yes. about, yeah. ironically. Yeah, and the families are incredibly grateful usually, but, you know, the patients are often sort of... You know, I'll have patients with me for months and we see them in the outpatient clinic and they yeah. sort of, hi, nice to meet you. And you go, oh, yeah, okay. You know, and the family go, no, no, this is Alice. And I'm like, don't worry, it's not. you don't yeah. need to sort of remember. Yeah. But it's the it's the after stuff. It's sort of saying, well, I can't go back to work now and I'm not the same person I was before. And now who's going to help me? Mm-hmm. And then you sort of start to go, um, yeah, who is sort of going to help you? Yeah. I think it's really hard because there's lots of big research. You know, there was the big sort of rescue ICP trial, which sort of was published in 2016, looking at what we call decompressive craniectomy surgery, so mm-hmm. moving big pieces of you know skull. These yeah. are major operations, and yes, it was doing wonderful things to survival rates, but it also found that it was leaving people in sort of very sort of severely disabled states. But I know we sort of chatted about this the other day, and it, the, the ethical sort of dilemmas around that. I just think it's all it sort of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, and having met families and patients who have been in this sort of cohort mm-hmm. a lot of families will tell you doesn't they're here and that's that you know and they've got quality of life and yeah. it's not the quality of life that, that some people may think yeah. but they are doing incredible things uh, but i've got other families that say Do you know what we really wish that this wasn't the way yeah. and we wish that we could have said no or something yeah. at some point i think we we spend a lot of time um because again you know all our sort of achievable targets are around yeah. kind of certainly you know if i take for example just cardiac arrest yeah. not even sort of trauma but sort of cardiac arrest management and we look at rosc we yeah. look at then survival to admission to hospital yeah. and then survival to 30 days or discharge yes. or whatever it may be um and often um you know we'll be resuscitating patients that you know full well mm. are, are not going to survive yeah. long term but I think you know, kind of, we as a as a group of sort of staff, kind of take some sort of solace in the fact that actually that's maybe buying some time for relatives yeah. to kind of get. And do you find because you're the person sort of dealing with yeah. that next mm-hmm. day, week, mm-hmm. months in ITU? Um, is that a thing? Is is it yeah. beneficial? Yeah. Or, is, or is that something we're telling ourselves to make ourselves yeah. feel better? <laughs> no, I think I think it is. You know, I think when people know that you've you've done everything, I think it is much easier to have those sort of conversations where you say, "Look, we have done everything, but in spite of that, mm-hmm. this is the way that the injury." And I often say to patients, to the families, the patient is in charge, and they look at me like I'm mad, and they sort of say, "I go, this is whatever's going to happen. The outcome is, in my mind, sort of determined by the patient. We've done everything we can do, and we're now here in a supportive method. If they're going to fight, we keep fighting." 
if they can't fight anymore, then the fight is sort of over. And they sort of go, again, they look at me like I'm sort of insane. And, you know, the doctors are very much in charge. And I sort of say, no, no, you know, this is the the sort of, but I think buying that time, we we recently sort of adopted this, uh, it was by a sort of anaesthetic consultant in Bristol. Um, It's called sort of devastating brain injury pathway. Mm -hmm. And it's something we were actually doing at the London for a long time, but we're sort of naming it. Yeah. And it's talking about admitting people to intensive care sort of after what we would sort of call a catastrophic or devastating brain injury um, and giving people time just to sort of see, well, actually, you know, are they doing something, even though, yes, the scan looks sort of catastrophic. But it gives the family that time to sort of say, you know, I think trauma death is just it's members of the public don't understand it. It's not, you know cancer heart attacks yeah. everybody knows somebody who's had one of those not many people know someone whose 25 year old son has has died from a traumatic brain injury and again as i mentioned before do a lot of bereavement work and when people come back and talk to us they still don't understand it yeah. they don't understand how the relatives died and you think we still how and how it's, the, do we it's not? the sudden nature of it all isn't oh, it you know someone just, goes out in the morning like yeah. their normal sort of day say life and, and the next thing they've been hit by a bus or something like that. and yeah. and it's and there is no, there's no going back, but mm. there's no warning, you know, no. at least with a, an illness or something, yeah. in no matter how short, yeah. there is some warning, isn't yeah. there? And, um, you know, and more often than not, you know, and as, as, as you'll probably attest to, you know, I think you only have to look at statistics that trauma mm. is a relatively young disease, yeah. for yeah, want of yeah. a better word. Um, and so I think particularly with certain neurotrauma, is it is it more difficult because the very nature of it is people personalities change and people's yeah. and and do you find is that the part that people kind of you know once they've got over the actual kind of, sort of physical yeah. disability yeah that the fact that you almost kind of you've lost that mm. that yeah. relative yeah there's huge issues with sort of you know sort of you've got the patient group that perhaps sort of don't regain sort of full awareness so if it's sort of physically here and but actually lost the you know the family have lost the person they weren't before and then you've got patients that recover to a pretty decent but then they have loss of identity you know the person we are is the person of the years that have made up of you know and if over, overnight you can't remember the majority of that or not that you can't remember it the things that you used to love to do you just don't care about anymore yeah. you know it might have been a sort of passionate sort of golfer and now you're not interested in golf and you sort of then go now what do i do you yeah. know and you sort of we see these people in clinic all the time you know, they're in their 40s they can't go back to the job they always did you know especially for you and I like I'm such a nurse you know if someone said to me tomorrow I can't yeah. do it I'd sort of go yeah, oh likewise. now what do I do and it is part of my identity mm. and I think that is just so challenging and that's where the resources are just sort of they're yeah. not there yet how I mean how do you like just just listen to you sort of talking and, and the extent of what you're involved with how do you where, where do you where do you stop yeah. Um, <laughs> just, is this the, que- yeah. the question I just should be asking? Is keep going. Is yeah. It, yeah, where do I stop? Um, I mean, look, when I leave work, I leave work. Yeah. I think that's very much the thing. And I think there is, you do have to sort of have this real like, okay, I'm out of work. It's sort of done. Mm. That used to be easier in A&E because like yeah. you'd go and also I'd hand something over to the next. So however bad the day had been, someone else had to deal with it now. You know, bye, see you later. Whereas now it's like, it'll be there tomorrow morning, which means I do end up sort of thinking, oh, I'll just finish up this and just check that. I think, you know, I think, a lot of what I sort of remember is that I've got the ability to sort of technically see into the future with a lot of these patients mm. because I've been there with a patient before. And I think it's nice to sort of think, well, okay, that might be the outcome or sort of that might be the outcome. But I think that's that's somewhat reassuring. Yeah. I mean, the danger with any of these jobs, you know, is just complete sort of compassion fatigue. And I think if I get to that point, then I know I have to stop. Yeah. At the moment, I'm not there yet. And I still sort of, I, I feel like I can give each family but it you know it does often feel like you sort of see one family through they get sort of going off to rehab mm. the next day you start back in ITU and you're like wow we're on this journey yeah. again yeah and for me it's just the sort of day to day but for them it's the beginning of a totally life-changing yeah. journey when you when you work in a team say for example in the emergency department yeah. um you kind of know each other yes. you'll know each other's personalities yeah. and how everyone <laughs> behaves um you, you'll also kind of know that the the, the 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 days and the nights and the shifts that have yeah. gone on um so you kind of you'll keep a track of each other yeah um how do you who who sort of keeps a track of you who or does anyone um i mean yes and no i mean i've got sort of line management structures and that's a sort of nhs line management thing and they are very very supportive i recently actually have managed to get some supervision which has been great Mm -hmm. um but it's really funny because no one's ever given me supervision before so our first sort of session i sort of sat there and i was like now what do i do And she was like, we need to sort of say something. And I was like, well, what do we need to talk about? Yeah. And she was like, no, well, what do you want to talk about? And I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, because after sort of years of going, oh, can I have some supervision? I yeah, actually sort of sat man. down <laughs> going, yeah, I don't actually know what I'm meant to do yeah. in this sort of supervision. Um, so that that has started, which is quite mm. nice. But I still don't know if I'm getting the full value of it because I'm still not quite sure what I'm meant yeah. to be doing. I also think that there's, 
I mean, I'm, I may be doing a disservice to your line managers, but um, it's not that kind of personal, yeah. you know, sort of working colleague, yes. friends, yeah, and, yeah, and actually yeah. maybe sort of friends outside of work that w- will know you, yes. Alice, yes. and, you know, will know straight away that, that you're not having a good day yeah. or yeah. you're just not quite you. Yeah. And this is kind of something that we're working on at the moment is yeah. picking up on the small cues yes. of yeah. that's not normal behaviour yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know because I mean I used to line manage people in A and E, and you'd see it, yeah. and you'd sort of think, okay. I remember sort of years ago having a, a young boy, and he he unfortunately did die in the A and E department, and everybody was really really affected by it. And I was sort of running the recess room, so you don't have the opportunity to be affected by it. But I remember there was a sort of student midwife who was sort of absolutely traumatised, mm. and a sort of student nurse, and there was also a, a really junior um, police officer, and he was standing sort of by the patient because he had to sort of be there in floods of tears. And I sort of went out to sort of look for his gaffer and sort of said, yeah, yeah. listen, you need to swap yeah. this guy. He, this is not, he's not coping. Yeah. And he said to me, he's standing there and I'm sitting in the room with this boy's entire family. Who do you think's got the harder job? And yeah. I thought, mm, okay. So I actually thought in my mind, I'd looked at this sort of senior police officer and thought, you're really not supporting this guy. But actually, actually he was doing him, him yeah. the best yeah. thing that he could do at that point. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's just about sort of saying, and I remember we sort of, I sent sort of the student nurses home a bit early and just said, look, go and have a sort of dairy milk or a bottle of wine or whatever it is you need to do <laughs> and come back tomorrow. I said, but we do need to talk about it tomorrow. Yeah. I think you ended up doing, we did a lot of informal debrief. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of that. And I think I do that now. And I think I, I probably do a disservice to actually how much my colleagues sort of, you yeah. know, do help. And I think it's, but then it's funny because I sort of have to do all the human stuff that when I then talk to sort of a lot of the neurosurgical junior doctors and I'm sort of telling them a the story, they're like, oh no, I don't want to yeah, know that. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going, oh no, yeah. Because I, I really encourage that they are obviously humans, but I want them to see the brain as the thing yeah. they're operating on. I don't really mind that they don't see it attached to the human yeah. being because I yeah. want them to be really focused. So then afterwards I'll sort of say, oh, by the way, you know, they've got two small kids and they yeah. go, oh no, no, no. I'm like, yeah, that's why I didn't tell you beforehand, yeah. Yeah. you know. That's interesting. Yeah, because I think we, we do that to a certain degree. Yeah. And I know for a fact, you know, I, I, I you know, I've, worked on and and and, you, and even the language you use you know working yeah. on a patient yeah. but but you know you you, you deliberately are not really looking at their faces no, you're, you're no, trying yeah. to kind of dissociate where where you don't have that and actually no. by the sounds of it you you're almost kind of actively wanting to get to know some yes. people and their families and stuff yeah. um yeah how do, i mean the, the, the personal stuff i mean we were talking um, i did a a bereavement sort of workshop okay. recently you were talking yeah. about doing some bereavement work yeah and one of the things that came out of it was that the family, um, some families um, really appreciate kind of meeting yes. people that's been involved in yeah. the way. But the thing that we came out was actually, is that healthy for yeah. us? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, and wh- where's the balance in that? Yeah, I think that's what's really hard. And again, we've done some work which sort of has led on from what sort of Frank does with London's Air mm. Ambulance. And I know the Essex and Hearts uh, yeah. um, team because I've done a couple with them. Um and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you sort of assume that everybody doing this sort of job just is okay with sort of bereavement mm. stuff. And I know, and again, I suppose I really assumed that, oh, well, you guys are sort of paramedics and you're really used to sort of seeing and, and you do far more of it mm. than we would do. But actually then the meeting of the family afterwards, that's the worst that's bit. been yeah, much, yeah. much harder. And it's been really interesting and to sort of say, okay, you know, how, and, and for me, I think because a lot of times I've already met the families mm. for a bit. Sometimes I haven't. Um, and, you know, we sort of reach out, I sort of write them a letter and invite them to come back if they want to. Um, and they gain so much from it that again, I sort of, I suppose I sort of take myself away from the personal aspect of it and look at it as a sort of an intervention. And I can sort of see how much they've got from it. And yeah. I sort of think, well, that, that I can sort of sit with that. But yeah, no, definitely, because um, I've done it with a couple of paramedics up at sort of um, uh, Essex. And it was really interesting after as we were all sort of debriefing and they found it much harder than I really thought they yeah. would do. And I think it's probably for some of the, because there will always be standout cases, yes. you know, in amongst all the yeah. jobs that we do, but there'll be standout yeah. jobs and that you need some sort of, you know, for, without wanting to sound too sort of, you know, American, but some sort of closure. Oh, 100%. On it on. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think, you know, so those are the cases that with, and that's where kind of your role and, yeah. and, and people like Frank who can sort of mediate yeah. that between yeah. kind of the, the need of the family to kind of meet people um, and so that, and get out whatever they need yes. for, for their journey moving on. Yeah. But likewise, mediating for the for the clinicians yeah. who may not necessarily want to kind no. of meet families or uh, to put that kind of personal aspect yeah. on them. And actually, I think that's the, that the, the success of what you guys do yeah. is, is that you can kind of mediate between yeah, the two of them. exactly. And sort of just to manage that whole sort of experience, I yeah. think, is a... So is there, you know, what what's on your sliding scale? What's yeah. a successful yeah. job or an outcome or, 
you know, is there a something? Yeah, I think it changes all of the time. I think if you'd asked me sort of, a, you know, a year in or two years in, it's probably very different to what it is now. I think for me, it's probably quite patient specific because I think if you try and sort of generalize this patient group, they're so different yeah. and they... And people people have got pre-morbid wishes and wants, like we all do, and personality, you know, yeah. sort of little nuances. And some people are really happy with something that other people would go, no, thank you, I'm really not, yeah. you know. Yeah. I think, you know, I know sort of families where sort of they've said to me, this is, you know, this is this is okay for us. Mm. And even when we've sort of looked at it from externally and sort of said, oh, we, we sort of wouldn't want that. But for them to say, this isn't what we want, mm but we're happy with sort of what we've got now. And then you sort of think, okay, you know, yeah. that. And I think, yeah, I think just sort of knowing in some way that even if the outcome is not the outcome you wanted, and I've had, you know, had a family member say to me, they said, look, it's not it's not the outcome we wanted, but it's an outcome. Mm. And I just thought, I said to her, do you know, that's incredibly profound. And she was like, no, it's not. And I said, no, I really think yeah. it is. And I was like, and I just think you cannot, you know, I wouldn't want to sort of walk in these people's shoes. And I just don't think that any of us should, should try. And I just think, I don't know how these families get through it, but they do and they all do. And that for me, if they sort of get through it at the other end and they're still sort of smiling. And, you know, I like it when families go back to work and they try and get on with normal yeah. things or they go to the family wedding that they were absolutely dreading, you yeah. know, and they come in and say, we went. And I say, well, how was it? And they say, yeah, it was awful, but we, you know, we did it. And just those sorts of things is just, that is what I think is the sort of most powerful. And, you know, I talked about the sort of A&E drug and that's the thing for me for this job. Yeah. You know, if I can sort of go, okay, cool. We got you. We got you to the family yeah. wedding and you told me, you know, I had a family in July that were admitted and the, his mum and she said to me, I want him home for Christmas. And I said, all right, we'll get him home for Christmas. Yeah. You know, that was July and they did get him home for yeah. Christmas for a day. But, but I saw yeah. her, I saw her recently and I said, we got, we did it. We got yeah. him home for Christmas. And she was like, I know. And I just thought, you know, there we go. For her, that was everything. Yeah. And we did it. I mean, it's initially when I first started talking to you, I just kind of thought actually, you know, rather, rather you than me. And actually <laughs> the, the idea of what you do and the enormity of it all seemed you know pretty horrendous for me but actually just just chatting to you for last you know nearly an hour yeah. now and actually the the picture you're painting is actually far more positive oh, than yeah. I thought it would be actually I thought it would be quite a lot of negative outcomes mm. and it seems like that that picking small sort of targets and small yeah, achievable 100%. goals is what it's all about yeah I think it really highlighted me I think you, you put something on you put a link on Twitter the other day to, uh, I think it was uh, one of the East London. Oh, Headway East London, Hedia. yeah. Absolutely and there was a wonderful. guy there who was, um, who's now an ambassador, who's yes. a patient himself. He's brilliant. And he, he was <laughs> hilarious. He was, he was, he was talking there, and um, he's obviously got some, some, still some sort yeah. of neurological deficit, but you know this humongous smile on his oh, face, and he was saying that he now has a relationship and yeah. he's independent once again, yeah. and it's taken him 15 years to get yeah. there, but yeah. he's got there. Yeah. And I just thought that sums it yeah. up, yeah. you know, more than yeah. you know anything you could sort of. Exactly, and I think that's the thing we say right at the beginning. You know, I say to people, this journey is long. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, and I spend most of my time shrugging my shoulders. You know, people want answers from me again, specialist in the title, and I just shrug my shoulders. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but we're on the journey. You know, it's like a sort of roller coaster. They're strapped in. Nobody wants to be here, yeah. and it slows down sometimes, and it's manageable. And other times, it feels like you think I can't do this anymore. And you know, and you sort of say you start on the journey, and we'll just see where it goes. Yeah. And that journey is lengthy, and there are, you know, there are people that do very well. There are people that don't. There are people that don't make it. And I think that everybody's journey is so unique and that's what's really difficult because I can't ever really prescribe a okay this is how I'm going to treat this family or deal with this patient because people want different things from you and they want them at sort of different times now I mean I think brain injury I mean I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy no. but having said that I have met the most incredible people and as I said the strength in these families like that is just you know if I'm having it makes you feel really guilty you know you sort of leave work and it's raining and you think I was you know coming here and it was raining I think oh bloody raining again yeah. and you think god I've got people that would sort of give their right arm to to be outside and 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 to even know you know all stuff goes on outside I mean there was um the sort of last sort of awful um sort of terror attack mm. you know I was at work just sort of dealing with my patient group and and my families were really upset and I thought oh they've obviously seen the news and they were upset because they'd had to go in the sort of little holding pen of yeah. the visitors sort of when people arrived just so that we can sort of check safety and numbers and things and they'd been down there for 45 minutes and they wanted to see their relative and I thought to myself this is the perfect this is what it shows you are in this complete tunnel vision situation where even the fact that there's a ter you know a yeah, major yeah. incident going yeah. on in London literally five minutes down the road it doesn't matter to you because what matters to you is your relative and I think if you can sort of 
understand that then you get why these families one are so determined but there's a determination that gets these patients through but also why there are certain ways that you have to you know have to be with the with people so amazingly we're coming up to an hour already oh. which is uh, I knew this was going to happen we run yeah. out if it was old tape yeah. we would have run out of tape 15 <laughs> times now we're just spooling over yeah exactly we're going uh, there's a problem here so last couple of questions really mm. and this is kind of just more about kind of you really yep. so it's a, you know from from the journey you've been on through you know your initial start at sort of guys and Tommy's yep. and then sort mm-hmm. of working in the emergency department at the Royal London um, and now doing the role you do now do you think do you think everything as you've gone along and specifically more your recent stuff does it has it changed you as a person what's what's your outlook on yeah. mortality I know yeah. you said you sort <laughs> yeah. of joke with kind of yeah. relatives and stuff like that but it must be difficult when you're surrounded by that yeah does without being sort of too kind of deep and philosophical mm. but d- does it affect your take on mortality do you you know have you become this kind of live every day as it is you know or? yeah it's funny isn't it because you you sort of think you want to be a bit like that mm. but then you still end up just being sort of whinging about the day-to-day yeah. stuff and you sort of think oh well you know i didn't do anything last tuesday did i you know did i do anything sort of and i'm always really in awe you know when you sort of see these young people who sort of get a cancer diagnosis and do all this wonderful mm. stuff and i think i'd probably sort of sit in bed and eat donuts or something you know i do and you just sort of think i don't know if i'd live each day and i definitely don't do it now and yeah. we'll moan about the district line and the usual yeah. things but, but yeah, it's, no, exactly. And I think if you, I think it would be weird to swing the complete the yeah. other way. I think what I definitely, as you know, I've sort of mentioned before, I'm convinced that everybody I know and love is going to have some horrible accident, yeah. you know. And I sort of, I mean, drive my sister mad. She's sort of got, got this boyfriend, and uh, you know, it's been a while, but I really want his phone number. And she's sort of going, "Why do you want his number?" And I sort of saying, "Well, because the amount of sort of girlfriends, boyfriends I've seen in an intensive care yeah. bed trying to get hold of someone's family members. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a pass lock on my mobile. I hope nobody sort of mugs me on the way home now, but <laughs> I don't have a pass lock on my mobile because I've been so many times yeah. trying to get hold of somebody's relatives and thinking if we could just open the phone. Yeah. And this is in the days. Before all that sort of yeah. fingerprint thing you know so I won't do it anymore you know I've got emergency contacts listed mm-hmm. on my phone I mean it, people must think I'm sort of insane but and as I said most Christmas dinners are talking about sort of yeah but I think that is definitely something we're so bad at about society you know we don't tell our family members what we would want yeah and I don't think anybody everybody has to have a sort of advanced directive or a massive list but just having those conversations and not the sort of flippant dinner conversations just saying oh yeah turn off my life support you know actual genuine conversations because I've seen when we've sat with families and the families who have made those decisions and just even though yes the outcome has been awful they have been comforted by the fact they know that this is what the person would want yeah I think you hit the nail on the head there because I think it's when it becomes very emotive and you know the patient is you know intubated and and you know Mm. then then it becomes about the family. But if your family are clear yeah. or your friends yeah. are clear yeah. what you would have yeah. wanted, yeah. then I think that's that's really yeah. super important. I know, you know, I, I, I have that. And, you know, we, we, we joke about kind of, you know, I cycle around London, which you yeah. know, lots yeah. of people think is yeah. lunacy. And you've seen me, the results of me being yes. cycling in London. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's important. I think it's important. Yeah. You know, I sort of joke about it, but my, you know, my family are aware yeah. of, you know, what my wishes are about yeah. sort of organ donation yeah. and also what what is a quality of life yes. for me. Yeah. And I think, do you think... Do you think, I mean, I, I don't know because, you know, I haven't been around the environment yeah. that you're in, but do you think your personal views on what is a good quality of life have changed? I think so, but they, I think they change all the time. You know, sort of, I'll have a patient who will just do the most incredible things after sort of a brain injury that nobody even expected them to survive from. And I think, okay, well, if they can do it, then I sort of yeah. wouldn't mind that. And then it might be another week where you think, oh, I'm not sure. I think that's what's really difficult with all these sort of ethical dilemmas in healthcare because you often hear... You know, we've started this sort of MDT at the Royal London where we sort of sit around uh, every week with sort of the ITU clinicians and we look through the scans and we start make, trying to talk about these sort of decision making. Um, and there's a lot of people who will quite happily sort of say, well, I wouldn't want that. And you sort of say, well, that's OK, but you're not them. Mm-hmm. And how do you know unless you were really sort of in that situation? And that's what I think about families who've got that sort of power. Whereas a lot of times you sort of say to them, you know, what do you think someone might want? And to ask that sort of question, they think, yeah. you know, I don't know, like that is a huge sort of decision and I think I would always encourage especially sort of you work in healthcare just always encourage people to sort of talk to families and you as I said you see the ones that feel empowered and they think he or she would just not want this and this is how we know you know and of course it's a medical decision but with these days you know we didn't used to ask families really and now we're really involving families which I think is wonderful but what the families then don't do is they don't have you know there needs to be sort of ad campaigns in my opinion about all this sort of stuff I don't think anyone will ever do it but there we go so (laughs) final question then Mm. 
where, without sounding like a, a job interview, like yeah. you started oh, out this, but yes. where where do you see this going? Yeah. Or where would you like it to go? Yeah. So if you were given the keys to the castle yeah. and you know you, you can take this role wherever you want it to go, where, yeah. what next, how yeah. would you see it going? So um, I think I'd like to stay doing it, which I think is a good thing. I'd like some colleagues, which would be, and I think for me, I can only look after the traumatic brain injury patients. And there are a group, you know, you talked about sort of the out-of-hospital cardiac mm. arrests. There's a huge group of patients with these sort of undiagnosed sort of hypoxic injuries yep. who are seen I sort of met one of the sort of uh, BART's ITU consultants and he sees all these patients in his clinic and they've their lives have changed yeah. and they don't understand why and the families are like well you should be happy because you've sort of survived this cardiac arrest and it's because they've had you know brain changes mm. um, so I would like to sort of do a bit more of that and take it a bit further I mean I do a bit of sort of ad hoc outreach but definitely do you know we've got really 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 sick patients in our major trauma centres really sick you know people who shouldn't be alive yeah. but also they can only stay there for a small amount of time and then they're sent back to the local hospital and we are putting huge pressures on junior doctors and junior nurses on medical wards yeah at St Elsewhere to look after patients that you just would never have seen before and I think people you know and then families get very distressed about it all and I think the that's only going to keep happening because every five minutes another sort of 20 very seriously injured patients yeah. come to the Royal London which is fine but yeah I think you need to sort of upskill all those other people and I would like to do a lot of sort of outreach work from that point of view and a lot of training and just understanding, you know, and even do some stuff with people's employers. Just, you know, understanding sort of brain injury yeah. and the sort of nuances about it. But I think that's who we do a disservice to. You know, major trauma centres are wonderful, yeah. but definitely to sort of our trauma units. Um, and even, you know, I've got really regular patients that have regular seizures. And, you know, there are paramedic crews going to them all yeah. the time. You know, and like just understanding that sort of nuances of, oh, this is how they're going to behave. Yeah. And this is the sort of strange environment that they live in. And, yeah. you know, just, I mean, you know, the yeah, sort of local patients that we would see sort of all the yeah. time and just just making sort of everybody a bit more aware I think is the, yeah. the key well I could carry on I know I was going to say we're quite capable of luckily there's, there isn't tape long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but um, and, and maybe for, for, for the next series we can kind of get you back in and uh, get a couple of the other guys in to kind of get their perspective yeah, as well we'll but, try um, and convince Frank well, yeah, we'll both work on Frank. In yeah. fact, we'll, we'll out him on this podcast now. Yeah, if so anybody Frank would like Chegay, to have Frank yeah. come and uh, do the podcast, I'm sure you can get in touch. Um, but um, yes, and until such time as that happens, um, I just want to thank you once again yeah, for coming you. in and taking time out of your ridiculously busy life to come and uh, to thank come and chat you. to me. Um, and as I said, uh, hopefully we can uh, we can chat some more soon. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.